we need to look at Haggai. So I think that's where we left off last week. Uh, yeah, right at the end of it, didn't we? Oh, did we get to the end of it? Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. So I did mention how in uh, Haggai 1, the issues about their priorities and all this stuff? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we didn't do page 21. I think that's where we just get ready to go into that. Okay, so we did go over the message then at the bottom of page 20? Uh, no, I think uh, that's where we left. No, we actually talked about Zechariah a little bit, didn't we? Well, let me say what I was going to say, and you tell me if I said it. Okay. I was to do it again. Well, I was trying to describe how in Haggai 1, the issue was the focus on the priorities. They built their houses and not God's house, and so God corrects them on that. And that's where I think the issue is applicable to us, not so much in a building. In fact, I remember talking about the building. The issue is really about their priorities. They had to build a temple. Uh, but this applies to all the work of God and the activity we are in building up the body of Christ and seeing people come to Christ. Uh, our priorities are, should be to do what God wants. And I did mention how they have laid the foundation for 16 years. They didn't build the superstructure. I did? Okay. Yeah. I know it's in my mind because gone through this book so many times, that's the problem. Separating what's happened with what happened. Okay, well let's let's then go to Zechariah. This is on page twenty one. The, the title of the book is taken from the author. It means Yahweh, that is the Lord remembered. It is used for more than 20 men in the Bible. It was obviously a popular name. The author of this book was born in Babylon and returned from there under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 536. He's referred to in a number of places in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Zechariah 1.1, he states he is stated to have been the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. But in Ezra 5, 1, 6, 14, he is more simply called the son of Iddo. Since Iddo was his grandfather, this, this may indicate that his grandfather was, was better known or that his dad died at an earlier period in life. It doesn't really affect our understanding of the message of the book, though. Uh, as far as the date and setting, the key here I want to point out, this is at the same time period as Haggai. If you notice in the second line under date and setting, at the very bottom of the page, the last line, we have three dates given in the book. One one, it's in October to November of 520 BC. Now, in this text, it doesn't say October to November. We have to compare what they say here with word of the Gregorian calendar. And so we have to make the connections between the two. But all Bible scholars, liberal and conservative, agree that this would be October and November. Uh, Jewish people say the same thing. So it's pretty clear cut. Then we have a 1 7. That's on February 15, 519 BC. So notice, this is about a half year. Uh, I'm sorry, about a year later. Now notice how the date goes down from 520 to 519. The dates always get smaller as you're going to Christ. When you get to Christ, then they start increasing by one year. Before that, we're really subtracting. So that's why 519 is later than 520. Uh, also, there's another date in 7-1, and that would be on December 7th, 518. BC. So notice that's you know around a year later, a little bit less, I guess. But uh, it's about the same time that we're in right now. Uh, this would have been about last week. So 
those are the dates. Pearl Harbor Day. What's that? Pearl Harbor Day. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I wasn't there, but I saw the movie. Right. <laughs> 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 now my uh, my dad told me about it. <laughs> that my mom and dad both did, so it was kind of a memorable experience. Oh, I bet. Dad and the two big events events for them was Pearl Harbor and also the Depression. Sure. Um, in fact, our family, we used to own one-fourth of Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, and we lost it all in the Depression, which is too bad. Yeah. And my grandfather contributed because he was a big drunkard and he lost a lot of money with poker and booze and you know, whatever other vices go with that. Um, so he was he was working to bring the wealth down, and then the depression hit, and it did hit bottom. And here we are, poor kid from Alquippa, Pennsylvania, home of Mike Dick and Tony, Tony Dorsett. So I can't think of anything else good to come out of there. But I'm not sure that those guys are very good either. <laughs> Back there, <or> not. <laughs> so, anyway, this this is the setting would be about the same month that we're in right now. Let's look at the message. In Zechariah, he delivers a series of prophetic oracles. These are the word oracle means a message. They're prophetic messages. And these are to those who in repentance resumed rebuilding the temple. Now remember Haggai, the issue there was rebuilding the temple. It's the same issue because it's the same time period. And so this message is meant to encourage those who actually did work on rebuilding the temple because that's what God commanded them to do. To encourage God's people, Zechariah prophesied, prophesied how God would make the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem the center for his worldwide rule. Let's pause there. Look at Zechariah 1, verses 16 to 17. Notice the focus here on the temple. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. Now, he's not talking about the temple in, in Zechariah's day. This is going beyond that, because he's going to describe in the book some of the uh, great splendor that will go. We call it an eschatological temple. That is, this temple that's going to be built in the millennial kingdom. And it will be the greatest of all the temples. Um, the land in Israel where the temples occupied, uh, the Jew and Palestinians, they fight over that. There were no other rockets, right? Yes, that's right. And what will happen, though, it's going to the Jews. Now, all the world seemingly now lined up against Israel. I think we're on Israel's side. I'm not sure about that. I we are. Yeah, I hope so. But, you know, in the end, it will go back to Israel. So the one nation I'm betting on surviving all the terrors of our age is that Israel will be there in the end. I cannot say that up at the United States. But, you know, like I said, the United States is a pagan country. Uh, there are Christians in our nation, but they obviously comprise a very small element. But Remember what Jesus said? Many are called, few are chosen. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow the way to eternal life. And we see that uh, being carried out. Our culture had this Christian aura to it. But it really was. I mean, it was just, this is tradition. So we were, we were raised, we went to church, my parents weren't converted, but it was part of the family tradition. We were Presbyterians. And um, we just had to do it. I don't know how often we went. I do know we were there Christmas and Easter. So I think we went more than that because I, I was involved in a youth group when I was 
when I was in grade school and you know, we did some plays and stuff in front of the church and all that good stuff. So at least my parents were sending us to church. I don't remember how often they were there. But that was part of our tradition. Yes? I was wondering, in, in Israel right now, I think it's in Jerusalem. What is it that has that big gold dome? You mean the dome of the rock? That's the dome of the rock. Right. And that is what? Well, that's a key place that's associated with, that's connected with the temple. That's where Solomon's temple was, right? That's right. That's where Solomon's temple was. And, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I know they're fighting over it. Yeah. So, yeah, when we went to Israel in 2000, we went there. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's it's really Solomon's temple. Solomon's quarters, because he also has his house there. So it's a very impressive complex. But uh, because of the significance of that, like I remember every day when we were in Jerusalem, uh, not only did you have that, but you had the Wailing Wall. And out there you'd see a Jews, they had their flackers on, their hats on, and you'd see people there crying and stuff like this. It was, it, you always saw somebody there. So I think some of the guys went down and tried to witness some of the people there. And I think they actually did. But some of did ask them to leave. <laughs> That's Jewish territory. Yeah. That's right. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, I've seen it in some movies and things like that and other pictures. But you know, to actually be there and see it and go down there. It was pretty interesting. So it's a, but Jerusalem's a neat place. you got Jews, Palestinians. They have their separate sections in the old city. and So we'd go there. In fact, it was interesting. When we get our money exchanged, we did not exchange it with a, a Jewish vendor. Our tour guide, there was one Muslim who said it was about the only honest man in town. And that's where we got our money exchanged. But he supported Christianity. He had Calvin College. He had to sign up for them. And uh, I forget some of the other colleges. I also remember next to Calvin College was Brigham Young University. We wanted to explain to him the difference. But it didn't matter to him. <laughs> so... You know, it was, we did have a good experience with one Muslim. <laughs> I, I tell you, these countries that persecute the Jews today would do well to look at history because none of them remain in power. That's right. Not, not one country <coughs> remain in power. I yeah, and Israel could be dispersed again, but they'll be back. <coughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, because we don't know that Jesus is going to return tomorrow, tonight, or whatever. He could. Yes. But he may not. And judging by things nobody can tell. So the last thing I knew is when you have people telling you the dates, I know they're wrong. Because there are date setters and they seem like they're becoming more prevalent today. So, anyway, but it's very interesting. If you actually be there and smell the smells and walk through the city and uh, the food that they're cooking and all the various vendors. It's, it's pretty interesting. So it's, but you could tell right when we were there that things were going to explode. The tensions between the Palestinians and Jews, they were mounting. So sure enough, within a year, uh, they had more skirmishes between the two. So it's, but it's pretty interesting. I don't think the Jews are going to give it up. Oh, no, they're not going to give it up. They'll go down fighting. Exactly. Yeah, whatever else I can say about the Jewish people, they are pugnacious when it comes to their land, <coughs> to their land and the temple. So they will give it a good fight. And, you know, for a small country, 
Jake being a real powerful country, it amazes me. But we always make a joke that <coughs> we go on these bus tours. And so it was interesting how the Jews always owned the buses. The people working for them were Palestinians. <laughs> Who owns the property now? Who owns the dome, dome of the rock? Who has ownership of that house? Palestinians. I think it's the Palestinians. Yeah, Israel does not. I don't think, I'm pretty sure they don't. Because would they tear that, if they did, would they tear that down and reconstruct the temple? Well, I don't know about that. No? I, mean, I, I think it's the Palestinians. I'm not sure, Ken. Okay. But it was it was just a lot of intrigue with it. Isn't the Antichrist going to set himself up in mm -hmm. the temple and say he's God? Well, then it has to be Palestinians. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Jews would let him come in. Well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think they will. Although the Jews are, by and large, an unbelieving, unregenerate nation. God's not satisfied with them uh, because of their unbelief. Right. Until they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, they are, they will suffer eternity in hell. So being a Jew doesn't mean you're, you're special with God. Being special with God means you're saved by grace. And until they come to that point, uh, they will not have God's good favor. But God's still working his plans at all. And he will save them at the end of the tribulation. All Israel will be saved. So that's on their future. But it's going to be tough until then. They're his chosen people, though. Oh, they are his chosen people. Now, there's a difference between being a chosen theocratic nation where you're going to have theocratic privileges as a nation. And also, somebody who's individually chosen. All true believers are what we would call God's elect. And we know they're the elect because they repent and believe when they hear the gospel. So, that personal election is people. That's special because that does include eternal life. So Israel, they are chosen as God's theocratic nation, but individually, they're not going to experience the benefit of eternal life until they actually repent and believe. But I know some Jews that have come to Christ, so it's not impossible. In fact, when you think about it, it's impossible for all men to come to Christ. We weren't pleasing in God's eyes. It's only because of His elective purposes that he chose us with that somebody gave us the gospel and he regenerated us he gave us life so that we actually repented and believed but it's all because of God that that happened not because of us so to me I, that is the difference between individual election and we call what you're referring to as corporate election that means our nation is set apart for future per, for God's future purposes and so they will be saved, but not yet. We just don't have any idea why God chose to choose them, do we? No, we don't. If that's his mystery that will, you know, that we will never know, maybe. Right. But well, just like, why did he choose you or me? I didn't deserve it. Well, it's all part of his good pleasure. Mm -hmm. And in his good pleasure, he chose to set Israel apart to be his special theocratic people. And he chose individuals to receive personal salvation. But it's all God's choosing. It's his good pleasure. So we really don't know, except to say it's God's good pleasure. I wish I knew, but I don't know, and that's the way God designed it. I know. That's one of the mysteries that you just go through your mind constantly. Sure. But ultimately, this exalts God. It humbles the sinner, and it exalts God. And that's what it's all about, is exalting God. So it's... Yeah, read this article on Christianity Today today. Remember that little gymnast, Gabby Douglas? Well, she's a Christian, and you know, I didn't hear when she was interviewed that they were pointing out how 
in one of her interviews, she said he, she owes everything to God through Christ. So it did seem to reflect that she is a, I mean, seemingly she seems to be a believer. But she was saying things that believers ought to think. This is really goes to God. So it was, but anyway, it was pretty interesting. And, uh, she was quite interesting. And it's better to be petite and be a gymnast. That's what I concluded. <laughs> so, yeah, my my son Bob, he's got two daughters in gymnastics, and Mary's in fourth grade, and she's in advanced gymnastics. The, the surprise, they, they're in a city called Surprise, and the Surprise Athletic Club, they sent her a balance beam because what they do is as they build into the larger ones, they start so you can raise it a little bit. So it's, she seems to do it pretty well. And I said, well, you never know. Maybe, she, I said to Bob, I said, maybe she'll be in the Olympics. And he, but he said, it'll never happen because what you end up is with a dysfunctional family. Everything revolves from one person. <laughs> and he says, it's about our family unit and serving Christ. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> He's just a hard-hearted guy. <laughs> so let's look at this Zechariah 1. Verse 16, Therefore this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. I, I believe I just read that, but notice he goes on, And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. What's for reconstruction? Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Well, in a nutshell, this is really a primary part of the book of Zechariah. There's another part. Let me pick up with the third line under the message. I stop with the end. And restore the Davidic throne and the priesthood to their positions of leadership and prominence. Look at chapter 8, I believe it is. Chapter 8. Yeah, verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Uh, let's see, let's look at this first. Yeah, I may have... Yeah, let's look down at verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says, many people and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and to seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty. Oh, yeah. Let's look at another passage here. There's a reference to the... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's chapter 6. Excuse me, I know that this passage. Go back to chapter 6 and look at verses 12 to 13. With the verses we looked at, we see how Israel come back. They're going to rebuild the temple. And many other people will, will become believers. But notice verse 12 of Zechariah 6. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Now the branch is a messianic expression to refer to Jesus. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on this throne. And he will be a priest. So notice, not only is he a king, the branches alluding to his role as king, but he also will be a priest. And there will be harmony between the two. 
So, there is this time coming when the office of king and priest will be united in Christ. We saw a glimpse of it in his earthly ministry when he lived for 33 years. But he did not take up his throne in Israel. In the millennium, he will take up the throne. And we will see him as king and priest. So we will worship him. And he will rule over us. So, briefly, that's a little bit about that. Though the realization of these promises would be delayed and seemingly jeopardized by the post-exilic community rejection of God's leadership, the post-exilic community is the time period that Zechariah was preaching in. It's after the exile, so they call it post-exilic. But the post-exilic refers to the days that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are in. And so, and seemingly jeopardized by the post-exilic community's rejection of God's leadership, the Lord would eventually deliver his people from renewed Gentile oppression, move them to genuine repentance, and restore them to a vibrant covenant relationship with him. In that day, and in the context, I'm quoting from Chisholm's book on the Minor Prophets, in that day, it refers to that future millennial time period. In that day, in that time, he would also bring the nations into his kingdom. Well, that's the future expectation. Now, probably Zechariah is a companion to books like Daniel and Revelation. And that's where those types of subjects about the future kingdoms are developed. Um, it's beyond the scope of our class because we're meant, this is meant to be a survey. But there's a lot of other things here. I've taught a Hebrew exegesis class on Zachariah. It's pretty fascinating. But uh, probably at our seminary, probably Dr. Compton's more the, uh, the guy who's the expert in those areas. I can see most prophetic knowledge to him. Okay, well, that's Zechariah. Let's move on to Malachi. This is the very last book of the Hebrew canon. There's a lot of Jewish technical literature in the Talmud and the Mishnah that will make statements about Malachi, how Malachi was the last prophet to prophesy. Well, remember I said the date's 430? Well, that's the last book to be written in the Old Testament. So this brings the Old Testament Bible to a conclusion. So this is the very last book. Malachi, or I heard somebody one time say, Malachi, he was Italian. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, he was Jewish. <laughs> 400 years of the New Testament. Right, and it's 400 years in the New Testament. Yeah, it was it was an Italian preacher. He's a Christian, though. <laughs> so anyway, his name means my messenger. We don't know much about him. We know it's a proper name, and uh, that's about all we really need to know. Look at the date and setting. I have three paragraphs, so let me cut to the chase here. The key information is in the third line when we start with Roman numeral two, date and setting. The internal evidence within the book of Malachi in comparison with the book of Nehemiah suggests it was written around 430 B.C. Um, we have Jewish sources to say that the internal reckoning system in the Bible points to that as well. So that's a firm date for it. Now, because of our time, we want to focus on the message. So let's drop down to Roman numeral three. <coughs> the major thrust of Malachi's work was to apply the Mosaic Covenant to this post-exilic community of Yehudites who had lost sight of their distinctiveness as God's chosen nation. Now, let me pause there. Remember, we looked 
oh, weeks ago at the Deuteronomy 28 and how God promised to bless the Jews if they were obedient to him. And in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, about the first 14, 15 verses talk about the blessings. But each of the books have somewhere between 40 and 50 some additional verses. And it all relates to the judgments because God understood that they were going to be a rebellious nation. And so those are part of the promises, the blessings and the curses as it relates to what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Often we associate that with with the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. God had a lot of other laws. You read Deuteronomy, and there's just a ton of them. Well, that's the Mosaic Covenant. So Malachi is calling the people back to obey the Mosaic Covenant. And so so he's calling the Hudites who had lost sight of the distinction as God's chosen nation back to their roots, so to speak. But he also points out here problems of improper worship. Uh, let's just pause with improper worship. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9. These verses, they tell us about the improper worship. Um, look at, drop down to, uh, well, let's start with verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. So Malachi's writing this. This section is addressed to the priests in Judah. He says, you are showing contempt for my name. Well, can he be more specific? Well, continue on. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's temp table is contemptible. When you bring bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Uh, he's referring to the Persian governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And notice this statement. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. Useless, they would uh, have fire and offer up their sacrifices. And he says they're useless. Your sacrifices mean nothing to me. That, that's his point. Uh, so that's what he means by improper worship. Now that continues on in chapter 2. But notice, continuing on with the third line under the message, improper marital relationships. Look at chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Uh, notice in particular, uh, God explains how they've broken faith with their covenant partners. Look at verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? He's talking about the covenant relationship between the Israel man and his wife. In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why did he make the two one? Because he was seeking, he was seeking godly offspring. Now, part of the point of marriage is to raise children and nurture and admonition of the Lord if He gives us children. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be regenerate, but we still teach them the proper way. Uh, and often, God does save children in Christian families. 
I know many examples where he does not though. See, regeneration is still a miracle. And so we can't guarantee that when we raise our children that they'll be God-fearing. We train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and if God's pleased, he'll save them. But they have more opportunities to hear when they're raised in, in a Christian family. But notice, now there are other purposes in marriage, but one of them is to raise children to fear God. So he points that out. He says, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Now, what he's referring to here, the wife of your youth, that doesn't mean that they were real young. It's, well, it means you're younger. I don't know if it means you're just a kid. But you know how the marriages were set up in Israel? They were arranged. Uh, father from one family, probably the mother's involved too, the two parents would get together with another family and they'd draw up a contract. The youth part is referring to this contract that was arranged when they were young. And then the children would, you know, in most cases would follow through on it. You know, that's still practiced in India. Uh, not practiced in here. I know I tried to convince our kids when they were young that mom and dad should arrange the marriages. They didn't buy it, though. <laughs> they should have, <laughs> but they didn't. And I kind of reminds, resigned myself to, God's still sovereign over our culture, where these things work differently. And our kids marry pretty good people. Uh, so it seems to me that, you know, it works out. I think we had, could have had better choices, but it never happened, so I can't say. I know now it worked pretty well. <laughs> and that's really what we want. But here, he's referring to the wife of your youth. That goes back to this covenant that was arranged between two families when they were in their youth. Then he has, I've got the old NIV, and it says, I hate divorce says, Lord God of Israel. Now, I don't know the... Uh, what version do you have, Ken? I don't know. Is it 1984? Yeah. So it has, I hate divorce? It does. Um, you know, uh, the new NIV for 2011, I don't have it with me. I'm starting to transfer my notes to it. But they've got this reading correct. The ESV. You know the problem with this translation where it says, I hate divorce? God's not in the verse. That's a traditional interpretation. If you translate it, he's not there. The new NIV has it right. Rather than I hate divorce, it's the man who hates and divorces his wife. The ESV has it that way, so does the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, tradition's hard to break, but there's this mammoth dissertation on marriage's covenant where Gordon Eugenberger, he goes through all the textual data, and there's not one, one Hebrew manuscript that has it saying God hates divorce. Now, there's a reason why I bring that up. You know, I don't know where you are on the marriage and divorce. I think we marry for a lifetime. But there are but there are covenant violations, major covenant infractions that break the marital contract. And when it happens, God does allow for divorce. The Old Testament is replete with it. Like when a man went to war and he got a bride from war. He forfeited his right to divorce. And there's other circumstances where he forfeited, forfeited his right to divorce. So there was an age in American culture where we really pushed that. I went to Grace Theological Seminary. Uh, that was really pushed. There was no place for divorce or remarriage. But I can remember doing my THD work and 
we did the seminar on the teachings of Jesus, and I'm looking at the Old Testament, and there's two places in the New Testament for divorce. It's a marital infidelity, and also if the unbelieving partner departs. But if he's con if he or she's content to stay with him, you stay married. But there's also this other passage in Exodus 21, 10, what is it? Exodus 21, I think it's around verse 10. But if a man, if a father gets for his son a, a slave wife and he marries her, so the son's married to the slave wife and then he marries another one. Remember, polygamy was allowed in the Old Testament. So he marries another woman. And then he deprives his first wife of food, shelter, marital rights. Well, God says there, the slave wife is free to go. She can divorce him. So I prefer to say if there's a major marriage covenant fraction, uh, I think beating your spouse, I think those are grounds for divorce. Now, I'm not saying just do it initially. I mean, I, you know, you want to work, try to work something out. But it does seem to me, I know some situations where it's been bad. Um, I'd hate to relay them because some of the things that happened, I could not relay in a mixed audience. It's egregious. But, and in these cases, it was meant what they did to their wives. Well, see, to me, at that point, they have the right to divorce. Plus, when you have kids, you're teaching your children something about marriage. If the other partner can just go out and, you know, sleep around, what does it teach your children about marriage? You say, well, I'm going to stay with them because God wants me to stay married. But you're creating, you're communicating another message to your children. You can do that too when you get older. And your spouse has got to take you back. Friends, that's a bad message. So, anyway, but the new NIV, NIV has it right. It's the man or the one who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So this type of divorce is what's called an aversion divorce. It means the one spouse hates the other. That's what's meant by aversion. And he divorces, he divorces his spouse, or she divorces her spouse, because they hate the other. They despise them. Well, God says, this is the one that's doing violence. So, you know, to me, that's a very important passage. I remember when Pastor Dorn preached to it at Inner City. You know, pretty much, our church goes back to the old days of Dr. Rice. I don't know, did, did any of you go? I can't hear And you remember Dr. Rice. He, sure. He was very strong on that. Well, some of our deacons still are, so I don't think Pastor Dorn was perform a wedding service for somebody who's divorced. Um, I, his staff may be able to. I know I have. He, I mean, he gave me approval. Um, I knew the circumstances. In fact, it was my son Bob's father-in-law. He married a woman who was divorced. She went to the church. Her husband had, I think, four or five times left, stayed away for half a year to a year and they came back. The last incident, he went to Russia and shacked up with a commie. I mean, well, at that point, you know, my son Bob was influencing his father-in-law because he gave him his books to read. But Rick, he had been single for a number of years. His wife had died with cancer. So the deacons were supposed to be helping this gal out. They're praying for him, stuff like that. And he was chairman of the deacons, and he took it a little too seriously. <laughs> so he helped her to the altar. <laughs> but I'm totally convinced 
that this is biblically right in my Hebrew class on Malachi. I've got 25 pages of notes on what is the marriage covenant, what constitutes a violation. And we've worked through all the biblical texts. And so I think some of these modern translations, they've got it right. It's not God hating divorce. See, I know pastors. This has always been their proof text to beat somebody over the head because they wanted to divorce their spouse who was sleeping around. And they'd always say, well, God hates divorce. So you're sinning against God. Well, with this translation, that takes that out. It takes it out of the equation. By the way, it should never have been in that equation. It just could be taken as God hates a certain type of divorce, not all divorce. Because you'd almost have to say that because there's so many laws. You know, I like the one in, it's in Ezra, where Ezra commands the Israeli men to divorce their pagan wives so that they could marry the Jewish wives so they could have children of the covenant. And he commands them. So, anyway, I had to try to reason with uh, Bob's father-in-law's pastor. He didn't agree with me. He could never answer anything. He just said, in my conscience, it bothers me. And I just said, good night, man. We've gone through all these tests. Doesn't that influence your conscience? But I was pretty, I mean, I wasn't quite that blunt with him, but tactically, I said that to him. And, uh, Anyway, I just said, I want you to know that I'm planning on marrying him. I hope there's some sense that I'll have your approval. And I did get his approval. But it's pretty hard. I spent over a half hour with him going through all these texts. And, um, you know, when you can't answer somebody and you hold on to a position, to me, that's just, I, I just don't understand it. Some, some people just aren't rational people. So, anyway, so that's... For, for, for a happy marriage, you have to take your wife on trips. Like on her 25th anniversary, uh, I took my wife to China. On her 40th, I went and got her. You're a good kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife always wanted to go to Israel. I mean, go to Hawaii. In 2000, I took her to Israel. And I've also taken her to Great Britain. When did you go get her back? <laughs> we went together and we came back together. <laughs> her, gun, her dad's got a big gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that boy has a big gun. Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife doesn't, but her dad did. But, uh, you know, we had our 40th anniversary. We didn't do anything this year. I mean, we got, you know, for the weekend or something, but it was nothing major because, you know, we've taken some major trips and stuff like that. On our 40th, we we're going to spend two weeks in Arizona with, with Bob and Missy and their daughters. And at this point in life, that is a good trip because my wife would rather be there than anywhere else. So and she was there for what, 10 days in September, October. Uh, so they went on a Caribbean cruise and she watched the kids. And you know, the one thing about grandmas, they, they adore their grandchildren. Oh, without a doubt. And the great thing about them being grandchildren, you can spoil them and just send them back home. That's right. <laughs> uh, but we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not supposed to. <laughs> but we we try to be good parents in that regard. Whatever the parents say says goes. But anyway, that's what I would consider a good trip, and I'm sure that other places will go. So anyway, these are examples of the outright disobedience to God's covenant. Notice, furthermore. Consequently, when you read this book, 
Malachi often comes across negatively because he reminded Judah of the consequences of disobedience. However, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, he does describe how he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And it does relate to God's elected purposes. So although Malachi is harsh in many cases, this is one where he's positive because he's telling the remnant, the, the true believing Jews, that God had chosen them. And he uses this love-hate terminology. Uh, don't water down the word hate. Some people want to say it means he loves less. No, it means they're still condemned. That's what hatred is. Loviness is a lesson love. So he is positive on that regard. So by reminding Judah about God's dealing with them in the past, present, and future, Malachi called Judah to repent of their covenant sins and to renew their allegiance to the God of the covenant. And that, in a nutshell, is the book of Malachi. Now, may we also renew our loyalties to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas this year. You know, Christmas is important because we have God being incarnate in humanity. And His life on earth is absolutely important because He was accruing righteousness. That righteousness He accrues, He applies to the account of all those for whom He died. So, He had to live a perfect life, and then He had to die a perfect death in substitution for you and I. So Christmas is kind of a warm-up for Resurrection Sunday. But nevertheless, it still is important. Our society makes a big deal out of Christmas. It's very secular. But I think for the Christian, there is value to it. And we should extol it. And, you know, I like Christmas trees. And my youngest granddaughter still believes in Santa Claus. Sure. But they're also teaching, she, she thinks more about Jesus. So, but they haven't they've decided not to uh, shatter all of dreams yet. <laughs> well, anyway, it's been good to have you in, our, in the class. And good to have you teaching well, it. very much. Well, great. Well, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I do hope you all have a good Christmas and a uh, happy new year.